0: hello and welcome to another episode on the new books network i'm one of the hosts dr miranda melcher and i'm very excited today to be interviewing dr sarah craze about her book titled atlantic piracy in the early 19th century the shocking story of the pirates and survivors of the morning star just out in 2022 from boydell and brewer um if it's not already obvious from the title this is about pirates which is really exciting in and of itself um but the book is even cooler than that in a lot of ways because it focuses on a particular episode that was particularly shocking um, for its time period for a lot of different people involved. Um, And the book tells us not just about what happened, but also examines why it was shocking and what the repercussions were and how this plays into um, geopolitics and military operations and media um, and all sorts of other things. So it's a really cool book that maybe says it's looking at one thing, but actually takes us on a whole journey. So um, I'm really excited to welcome you, Sarah, to the podcast to talk about your book.
1: Great. Thank you for having me. It sounds really exciting. I'm glad I wrote it. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Sarah Craze, as you mentioned, and I'm a piracy historian. I live in Melbourne in Australia. Uh, And I wrote the book for a few reasons, as most people do. Uh, The first was that I really wanted to put the full story of the Morning Star and its pirates and the survivors on the record. And it's been told numerous times over the years, but also in an abridged way, usually as part of an anthology of pirate history or something like that. So it's never been told as a standalone story. Uh, So I wanted to do that first. um, But then as I started researching and delving into it, I realised that I needed to correct those abridged versions of the story as well. And this is something that makes studying pirate history really fascinating and really frustrating at the same time because pirates have been around pretty much since boats were invented Um, and there's that old cliche about piracy being the second oldest profession and all that Um, but pirates as a source of entertainment for people and profit for publishers has also been around for several centuries and so what tends to happen these days is that early books about pirates from the the 17th, the 18th and 19th centuries are treated as historical sources on them when they are actually written just to entertain people and make money. And so that means that a lot of the time their historical accuracy is highly questionable. So this is particularly the case for the Pirates of the Caribbean, which is probably the one that most of your listeners will be most familiar with. Um, but it also happened for the pirates who attacked the Morning Star a century later. And so there's now there's two versions of the story that still stir- circulate today um, and they couldn't be more different from each other. So that added another layer of complexity to unpacking this story. Um, one is far more accurate than the other, but some historians still treat both of them as factual recounts of what happened. So I wanted to tell the story from scratch based on the historical records available. And what is unusual about this story is that there was actually quite a few of them around. And that's unusual from a piracy perspective and from a historical perspective. Um, so there's there's pirate confessions, there's witness accounts, there's court testimony, there's correspondence. So it's kind of surprising to me that it hasn't been done before. And it's even more surprising that the true story, based on the sources was actually far more interesting and compelling than what the previous versions told. Uh, so, and the final reason was that I wrote it was that I, I wanted the story of the survivors of the pirate attack <clears throat> to be just as prominent as the story of the pirates themselves. And when I say survivors, I mean the women on board the Morning Star. And, and as you'll know, as a historian, you know, women tend to get pushed aside in history in general. And this was the case here too but the, the women are the true heroes of this story and it became very important to me to ensure they received the recognition they deserved. And so that's several of the reasons why I decided to write the book.
0: Very good reasons. Um, so thank you for sharing them with us. Um, I do obviously want to, through this interview, uh, essentially correct the story or tell the real story of what happened um, through the lens of your book, but I will make sort of two caveats first. Um, For our listeners, the story, as Sarah's already mentioned... um, is really interesting and there's lots of twists and turns and details and as usual with these interviews we probably won't be able to get into all of the cool details um so hopefully we can do a bit of a highlights tour um, but there definitely are going to be details if they intrigue you i would encourage you to read the book and find them all out um, and then the second is um, essentially to you sarah before we start out correcting the narrative could you maybe tell us a little bit about kind of why, given that, as you said, piracy is a pretty common or, or at least very well-known thing, especially in this time period, why were these reports, inaccurate though they might have been, about the attack on the Morning Star so shocking to Britons in particular, um, so that we can kind of understand kind of how this narrative got all jumbled up? Start us off with sort of what did they know initially or think they know and why were they so surprised?
1: Okay, so the reports were shocking primarily because the attack brought real pirates back into the public consciousness for the first time, really since the days of the pirates of the Caribbean had ended, you know, about a century earlier. Um, And pirates were certainly still around, as you said, and they're definitely still causing problems for seafarers, particularly around Cuba in the 1820s and in the Caribbean but they were not affecting people's day-to-day life in any way. They weren't front-page news. They weren't sort of, you know, being talked about constantly. Um, But they were also uh, looming in popular culture at that time. So they were starting, what we know of them today, was actually starting to happen back then. So this attack occurred in 1828 and this was 14 years after Lord Byron published his very popular poem, The Corsair. And there had been several dramatisations of it performed on stage, so it was, it was pretty widely known by then and it was extremely commercially successful as well. And it portrayed the Corsair of the story, Conrad, who was the main protagonist, as a tortured yet noble hero. And so pirates had begun to assume this sanitised, lovable rogue persona that we are pretty familiar with today. And that was already happening at the time this attack occurred. And so when news of the attack arrived, particularly the reports of the violence of it, it really shocked people out of these romanticised notions of pirates that had begun to embed themselves in the discourse around pirates at that time. And the other reason uh, it was so shocking is just how quickly the news spread, and it really spread at a quite unprecedented pace. We'd probably say today that it went viral, for want of a better word. Um, And this was a time when newspapers were, were just beginning to be mass produced cheaply, so there was a lot of them available, and the stories just spread through them. So word of the attack had actually already reached most of southern England even before the Morning Star made landfall in Deal. Uh, And then within days it was in Ireland and Scotland and and after a few months it got to Europe and then it crossed to the United States and within a year it was reported in Hobart in what would eventually become Australia. So the faster it spread, the more people learnt about it, And the more fabrications of what actually happened began to occur. And we started to see the story corrupt and mutate almost immediately. It was starting to happen. And so a lot of the passengers that felt they had to then jump in and try and correct the narrative as well. Although, as we have since discovered, that didn't really have the effect that they thought it would.
0: Mm. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's that the context is really helpful, particularly um in the idea of like, well wait a second, if there is all this evidence, how did the story get so confused? And that really helps kind of make sense of that. Um and therefore highlight the importance of the fact you've corrected the story, which is what I would now like to get into. Um and so to kind of start off, you know, first principles. What actually was the ship, the Morning Star? What was it physically? What did it have on it? Who was on it? What do we kind of need to know about it before it becomes headline news?
1: Okay. So the Morning Star was a bark and it was built in Scarborough in 1825. So it was not a very old ship at the time it was attacked. Um, And a bark is a very common style of ship and it's distinguishable because of its three masts. So if you've ever seen a picture of a three mast ship, that's pretty much what a bark looks like. Now even though steamships were looming on the horizon, they were sort of starting to become more available, um, sailing ships were still significantly faster for transoceanic oceanic voyages at this time. So a voyage from London to Australia under sail would take maybe around three to four months in favourable conditions. So the, the speed of the ships had picked up Considerably, since really even forty years earlier, um, when voyages would be taking a year at least, uh, the technology around the sailing ships had really advanced significantly, and we we're right at the cusp before steamships are starting to take off. So, the Morning Star was built by two brothers called William and Robert Tyndall. Um, They descended from a long line of shipbuilders, as Scarborough has quite an extensive shipping history, um, and they were a significant part of it. They were also Quakers, and so that meant that for religious reasons, the Morning Star did not carry any arms on board. And obviously, this is going to become a problem for them as this story unfolds. So it was Pretty unusual at the time that the ship didn't have arms. Most ships, uh, merchant ships at that time, did still carry some arms on board because there was still privateering and there was still pirates around. The Morningstar, it was built primarily as a passenger ship with room for cargo. So it had a small crew of of about 12 um, and the captain's name was Thomas Gibbs. Um, the fateful voyage that all of this went down on, um, it had on board 44 passengers, including uh, retired major, William Logie, his wife, Anne, and their three-year-old daughter, Barbara. And another passenger who was on the ship was called John Smith, and he was the owner of the bulk of the cargo, which was cinnamon and coffee. So there was also a selection of other cargo items, including apparently a chest of precious stones, so very piratey. Um, I think these may have belonged to him, but there's not actually a record of that. Um, and in one of the stories I heard, there was also a severed head. Now, this was actually not that uncommon either back then because heads were being used extensively in phrenology and that was in a really extremely popular pastime at the time. At the time. So that's that's just one of the little quirks of the story that we were talking about before. Um, so the rest of the passengers were invalided British soldiers and their wives and children. And so in total there were five adult women on board and nine children. So that's sort of the the makeup of the ship itself at the time that this attack occurred.
0: Very helpful um, to understand, obviously, what happens next. Um, and so I would love if you could explain to us what how the actual attack happened so that we can then obviously pick it apart a bit. Sure. Um,
1: so the Morning Star left Ceylon, which is present-day Sri Lanka, uh, in November 1827 on the way to London. so And it was not an eventful journey. Uh, it was pretty quick, crossing the Indian Ocean. They stopped at the Cape of Good Hope around New Year um, and then they moved onwards towards the Atlantic Ocean. Now Captain Gibbs decided that he needed to check his navigation Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Atlantic Ocean, there's not a lot of points uh, to check your compass readings but one of them is an island called Ascension Island Um, and it has a very tall peak in the middle that you can see for miles around so it makes a really good navigation marker. Um, The ship arrives there just before dawn on the 19th of February 1828. And almost immediately there's a very swift brig with painted black sails that spots it and it's flying the black flag of Buenos Aires and it starts pursuing them. And and as I mentioned before, the Morning Star's unarmed, so it there's not a lot that they can do to deter the other ship from the pursuit at this point. Major Logie and John Smith start to they beg Captain Gibbs to heave to, which means to pull over if this was a car, um, probably assuming that it was a legitimate privateer. And since the British were neutral at that time uh, towards Buenos Aires, they probably just assumed that nothing much would happen. They'd just come aboard, check the papers, and that would be the end of it. But Captain Gibbs, who would have been very experienced and very familiar at spotting different ships, probably would have known pretty quickly that this was not a typical privateer and ship from Buenos Aires. The brig fired a few times at them in the water, around the water, and trying to get it to stop. But Gibbs is still trying to avoid the the brig's crew from boarding at this stage. And then the brig loaded up a round of grape shot, and that's like a big cannonball with a whole pile of projectiles inside. It's quite destructive, and it shot that across the deck of the Morning Star. And the projectiles just scattered all across the deck and they struck a few people on board and that's the point where gibbs thought would realize that there was just no point and the resistance from the morning star pretty much ended at that point so the brig pulls up alongside the morning star and a, a man on board yells across to send a boat over and he's speaking english but not very good english but he's speaking english Um, And Captain Gibbs is now trying to stall what is inevitably about to happen. So John Smith offers to go over and ask what the people in the brig want. And he returns pretty quickly with a head injury and he says that they want the captain. So Gibbs and a few other men go over to the brig uh, and they're never seen again at this point. And then in the meantime, the pirates on the brig have boarded the Morning Star and they set about raiding the ship. And they're very vicious and they're using their cutlasses and they're slashing at people for not moving fast enough and hitting people over the head and that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty dangerous, volatile situation. They also enlist a couple of the Morningstar crew to help them move the cargo from the Morningstar over to the brig. Now, as this is all going on, most of the passengers are being held below deck at the hands of a few of the pirates. And the pirates are actually forcing them to eat and drink as this is a tactic that they use to keep them pliable because the idea is if you get everybody drunk, then they're more likely to be a bit more amenable and you can push them around a lot more. So after this has happened, the pirates then separate the men from the women and children and they lock the men in, in a hold in the bow and they take the women to the cabinet. And at that point, they, some of the pirates then proceeded to sexually assault the women. And after this ordeal, the women hide in the cabin until ev- they finally realise everything's quiet. At this, at this point, we're now at about 1 to 2 o'clock in the morning. So this has been going on all, all, all day and most of the night. Um, then one of the women called Nellie, her name is, um, she discovers that the door of the cabin is actually unlocked. And so she and Anne Logie, who's the wife of the major, they go out onto the ship and to search it and look for the pirates and try and find the men. They discover them locked in the hold and after quite a considerable effort they, they manage to get them free from the hold. And so by now it's about 5 o'clock in the morning and it's almost dawn. Now nobody knows where Captain Gibbs is. Gibbs is at this point and a few of the other crew are also missing and no one knows where they are either. Some of the crew and the soldiers are seriously injured The pirates took sails, rigging, navigational equipment, most of the food and whatever cargo they had that they could move. So they're now pretty much without any real way of getting back to London. Fortunately, the fresh water is still viable and that's probably what ultimately saves their lives. Um, But they soon discover there's another big problem and that is that the pirates have drilled holes in the hull of the ship. And when they go below deck they discover six feet of water is now rapidly rising. So everyone that sets about trying to find and repair the holes in the ship, pump out the water and trying to stop the ship from sinking. Now they, somehow they manage to pull this off, but then of course they have no sails, so they are beholden to the current to try and make landfall. And they are, don't forget, off still off Ascension Island, but Ascension Island is downwind and there's no way they can get back there. There's not land for at least 1,000 kilometres, so they're in a real predicament. And they'd suffer quite horrific conditions with few crew, help crew the ship, there's little food, and it's also extremely hot. So there's also the threat of fire that emerges because the coffee and the cinnamon cargo is being activated by the salt water. And so they have to move all of that off the ship and dump it all over the side. So after about a month of this, uh, they, things are really dreadful, um, but the morning star finally catches a break and it encounters another ship that's called the Guilford. And its captain, Magnus Johnson, his name is, is absolutely appalled at what's happened and he offers them every assistance he can, including food and sails and crew. And with his help, the Morningstar somehow manages to make it back to London where they then raise the alarm about what has happened. And that's the beginning of the end of the story. <laughs> Exactly. Um, Then it just gets even more bigger than that.
0: (laughs) Exactly. It was. It's um, already a huge ordeal um, by itself. But as you then show in the book, there's a lot to unpack from that, um, which hopefully we can at least do a little bit of um, in this discussion. And so the first thing I kind of want to think about is you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that one of the reasons the reports that came out about this were so shocking is that piracy had sort of receded from kind of what affected people every day. It sort of receded almost from reality. It had gone into poems and operas and whatever. Um, And obviously listening to that recounting, it's kind of clear how even a jumbled account would be quite shocking to people. Um, But this had receded for a reason, right? Piracy wasn't kind of as big a deal. So to what extent was this attack unusual in timing, in location, in how it played out? Or was this just normal and less reported?
1: Well, the interesting thing about this is that it was actually one of numerous attacks that occurred at this time in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, The Buenos Buenos Aires flag that the pirates flew was because Buenos Aires was at war with Brazil at the time. Um, And this was called the Cisplatine War, and it was over ownership of the land that would now make up Uruguay. So that means that there's a lot of privateers out there. And privateers can be pretty easily persuaded to turn to piracy if that suits their purposes. And a lot of the privateers who are involved, have commissions in the Cisplatine War, aren't actually from Buenos Aires or Brazil. They're often foreigners and often uh, either Spanish or Americans. uh, And they're uh, not there's no British, so because it's outlawed in in Britain for um, people to engage in privateering for foreign flags. Um, so there's quite a lot of privateers out in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, there's also privateers from other newly independent colonies of Spain, because there's independence movements floating, uh, going, spreading all the way through Spanish America at this time. So it's a very volatile, unstable. Uh, on the land and that is transparenting, transferring over to the ocean. So the privateers though they're not supposed to attack neutral ships and Britain and the United States are both neutral in these conflicts. So in all the conflicts, the Team War, all of the independent stuff, the British and the United States are not staying right out of it. But it turns out of course that certain people will take advantage of the war and they don't really care about neutrality and they're going to attack whatever they can see and the pirates who attacked the morning star were not the only ones doing this now the violence of the attack was very similar to those that occurred around cuba in the 1820s and that's um sort of been covered in in other books. But um, I I do go into it a little bit in my book about about what was going on in Cuba at the time. And these particular pirates from Cuba were often quite vicious. In fact, it's actually what happened on the Morning Star was relatively benign when compared to just how vicious some of those attacks were. Um, The fact that everybody didn't die is probably a good thing but quite unusual. And as historians, the the problem we have is that if pirates raid and kill everybody on board and then they sink the ship, then there's no witnesses to anything that's happened. And unless the pirates are caught and confess, then we don't ever really know what happens to ships because, and that happened probably pretty often but we never can't really get to the extent of that because there's just no witnesses and there's no records available and not only that ships also they disappear for all sorts of reasons back then and and not just pirate attacks shipwrecks and bad weather and and all that kind of thing so it it definitely does seem that there's a number of pirates active in the area as well as the uh, privateers that are quite productive over there so and there's burning ships, and then there's disappearing. But the exact extent of it is a little difficult to ascertain because just the records just mm. aren't there. But it's not top of the press because the British are neutral and the British press is not really reporting it because they're not really involved in mm. what's going on. It's just happening in other countries.
0: Mm-hmm. That would make sense. Um so then I want to ask about, obviously, we, we know a bit now about the Morning Star and the people on it and what kind of ship it was. Um, can you tell us a bit about the pirates who conducted this raid? Who, who were they? Yes, I tell you quite a lot about the pirates because there's
1: actually quite a lot about them, which is pretty unusual when it comes to pirates. Um, so the pirates who raided the Morning Star were actually the mutinous crew of a Brazilian brig called the Defensa de Pedro. That was the ship that, with the black sails that was attacking, the Defensa de Pedro. It, there is a <clears throat> story goes around uh, that's been around for many, many years that they changed the name of the ship to the Black Joke but this, there's absolutely no evidence of that. Uh, it was always called the Defensa de Pedro and they never changed the name of it. So several of these crew um, had been active as pirates around Cuba in the 1820s and then they found their way to Rio de Janeiro during the Cispertine War. The original captain was a Portuguese man called Sousa Cimento. He, he was a legitimate Captain, and there was no accusation of piracy against him, he had a commission from the Brazilian emperor to um, obtain slaves and cargo from West Africa. And at this time Brazil is still involved in the slave train, trade but it's under quite a lot of pressure from the British to stop trading as slaves but it's also under a lot of pressure from Brazilian landowners to keep slavery going. So the emperor is in a real bind with between the British need to trade with them and their desires to stop slavery and the Brazilian landowners needing slaves to run on their plantations. So it's quite a tumultuous time within Brazil, not to mention that they're also at war with Buenos Aires down south, so everything's a lot of stuff's going on. Um, and because of the war and the situation, Sousa Cemento struggles to get sufficient competent crew, and he ends up stuck with several men that he figures out pretty quickly were probably pirates already. So he knows this even before he leaves Rio. But he's desperate for a crew. He's got this commission. He's under pressure from the emperor, so he decides to set sail anyway. Now, of course, it's pretty inevitable what then happens once they they make it to West Africa. Um, But the pirates in the crew mutiny. And Susa Cemento is is pushed ashore with several of the others who are on board the ship. Um, The mutiny is led by a Galician man called Miguel Miguel Ferreira. And Galicia is a coastal region of Spain. Um, But Ferreira is soon executed by another Galician called Benito de Soto. And he becomes the pirate captain. He's uh, around 22. He's quite a scary guy. Uh, and he's very violent and volatile. Uh, the crew then under Benito de Soto split into two, and one side is the original defensor de Pedro crew who are predominantly Portuguese, and they are essentially the hostages to the pirates. And the other side is Benito de Soto, and there's a rather intriguing and educated Frenchman called Victor Saint-Sir there's a Brazilian called Jose Santos, and there's another Galician called Nicolas Fernandez. And there's a handful of other French, Portuguese, and Spaniards who make up the pirate side of the ship. And most of them are no more than 22, 23 years old. So they're pretty young. There are some older ones there, but the, the ringleaders are pretty young. Mm. So that's sort of who they were. They how they became pirates is a little hard to ascertain. We can only it even Benito de Soto. It's unclear how he ended up in pirates. He's in the records in Galicia, and then he jumps to being on the defense of the Pedro. So what was happening in between that time? He's probably gone to Cuba. Nicolas Fernandez is definitely in Cuba. Um, and it's most likely that's, ha- and they knew each other before they went to the defense of the Pedro. So it's probably most likely they all kind of met in Cuba, raiding ships around there. And because the way that the, they executed the attack shows the hallmarks of a Cuban pirate attack. So, but that said, there's not a clear cut record that actually says that. So we can only assume that at this time. I mean- so, yes.
0: As you said, it's surprising to even have this much information. I know. Um, it's quite extraordinary.
1: Yes, <laughs> it to... was in
0: Spanish, so there's that challenge. But, you know, it's still it's
1: there. But you know, it's, it's just it's not been in English. So it's a challenge.
0: Until now. Until oh, you've put oh, it together yeah. in this book
1: now. So. And that was a lot of fun. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
0: Um, So we now know, obviously, a bit about the Morning Star, who's on it, um, what it was doing, and now also about the Defensor de Pedro, kind of who's on it, where it came from, etc. So that, therefore, brings me, quite obviously, at least in my mind, to um, the people that you consider really the heroes of um, this attack and survivors. Um, And you've obviously mentioned them a little bit, the women that were on the Morning Star. And I think one of the things that was really interesting in your book was um, not just highlighting their voices, but also delving into why their voices weren't heard before um, and kind of the particular things that were combining to suppress their voices um, and heroism in particular. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about sort of what we can understand about women and sexual violence at sea through this particular attack, through kind of the women involved, how they were treated afterwards, um, mm-hmm. kind of bringing this area to light? Okay.
1: So, first of all, women have been on the seas for centuries and they're, you know, as slaves, immigrants, convicts, passengers, but they really don't appear much in the records all that much until really until the late 18th century when the big immigration drives over to the United States and Canada started to occur from Europe. Um, And this is also when the records become far more reliable in general and passenger ships are becoming more prevalent and wives are sailing with their husbands and military as um, wives of military personnel as well. So there's more women on the sea that we know about, but they've definitely been on the sea for many years before this. Um, now, by the time of the Morning Star attack, it is pretty common to see them at uh, women at sea. But just as they were on land, women at sea were delineated by social class. And the men on the ship expected the social moors that existed on land to be retained on board. And this occurred even in extraordinary circumstances like shipwrecks or pirate attacks. There was ways women were expected to behave. Uh, It didn't really matter what was going on. They had proper levels of behaviour they're supposed to adhere to and if they didn't, the consequences for them could sometimes be quite publicly shaming and quite disastrous. So the way a ship's crew treated the captain's wife was always going to be very different from the way they would be treating a female slave or a convict. Now, sexual violence or coercion, sexual coercion as well, um, against lower-class women seems to be reasonably common. Um, sometimes it can be transactional, uh, and, but it's usually quite ruinous for the women um, for their reputations when they land, uh, because the men just sail off and and do whatever they want, they leave women with the consequences of of these situations. Um, but when sexual assault occurs, it's at best it's never mentioned, and at worst it's the fault of the woman for getting herself in that situation in the first place. So and the records on. Uh, rape trials, of which there were more than you would think, but, you know, statistically like today, unfortunately, these uh, it's a very low uh, prosecution rate and the vast majority of uh, accused rapists are acquitted, usually because of their sterling character or because the woman tempted them into it somehow, even though she was 10 or 12 somehow. So, yeah, that's a really... Uh, having this kind of thing happen to you is it, it, the consequences for you, are, and un- it's understandable why it isn't discussed. It is probably just easier just to not ever mention that it's happened. What that does to your mental health and all of that, I can only imagine. So in the case of the Morning Star, the sexual assaults were alluded to in the British records, um, but we learned most about it because the pirates actually confessed to it. And this came from the Spanish records, not the British, because the Spanish were the ones who prosecuted the pirates and the British were the ones who prosecuted Benito de Soto. And Benito de Soto never set foot on the Morning Star. And so it doesn't appear in the British records because he never did any of this stuff. It was actually the pirates, not him. Now, when I started, I wanted to focus on this. As I mentioned, it was really important to me to to try and, understand what was going through these women's minds at the time and and I thought very hard about how the Morningstar women would have responded to the threat of sexual violence against them and the established versions of events those those two narratives that constantly circulate they in both of them they're screaming and they're crying and all of that Um, but the witness accounts which are also written entirely by men um They did not mention this occurring at all. They don't actually really even mention the sexual assault, but they don't mention hearing the women screaming. They don't mention hearing anything much at all. At the time, they are locked in the hold, and we know they're locked in the hold while these assaults are going on. So they don't hear anything, and so they don't say anything in their account. And at this point, I had to decide whether they knew about it, but they were just protecting the women from the reputational damage Um, that would have been inflicted on them or because they did not actually hear them screaming and crying at all because maybe they weren't screaming and crying and at that point that's when I sort of put I tried to put myself in this situation and I thought well how would I respond to this situation I'm I'm trapped on a ship in a cabin with a stronger uh, man who's armed who has already shown to me that he's quite happy to use violence against people. There is absolutely no hope of me being rescued. I already know my husband and everyone else is already in the hold. There's no escaping this. It is going to happen to me and it doesn't, no, there's no way of stopping it. And not only that, but my child is with me and I'm a mother, so for the mothers out there listening, it you realise pretty quickly that you'd probably do whatever it took to ensure my child would survive this situation. And as I describe this in the book, this is essentially what Anne Logie does and she is in exactly this situation. And the interesting thing about her is that it's only in the last 20 years or so that the way she responds to this situation is backed by recent scientific evidence so and it's because of her and the choices that she makes in her situation that the morning star actually manages to make it back to london but you're going to have to read the book if you want to find out a bit more about it (laughs) so (laughs) i'll just leave that hanging there for you Um, (laughs) So so she is the hero of this story and she does what she has to do to survive and what she I, does do is really fascinating. So,
0: Well, I, I thought it was quite interesting um, reading it and thinking about kind of not just sort of, oh, well, at the time they, these things weren't talked about and kind of leaving the story there. And really, um, I think that was a part of the book, maybe where it came through most clearly the impact perhaps of researching this kind of thing as a woman, certainly reading it as a woman. Um, I think... I would be curious to see if there might be quite kind of different reactions to that part of the story. Um, Those of us who do live in female bodies kind of going, yeah, okay, I can see what's happening here. Like, yep, I understand that mindset. I'm with you on the kind of, yes, obviously we have to make some suppositions. We can't read her mind, uh, but we have to do that as historians for a lot of things. And so, okay, I'm following your train of logic versus I wonder if um, people who maybe haven't lived in female bodies um, might find that a bit more of a jump or might maybe not think of that necessarily um so i thought that was a particularly interesting piece um both from like a telling the story point of view but also in terms of like scholarly research and what we bring to the things that we study yeah
1: Yeah. And we can't ever really know for sure because Anne never wrote. uh, Well, there's an allusion in the Spanish records that one of the women, and I'm assuming it's Anne because she was by far the most educated, um, possibly wrote some test, some kind of statement or that for the Spanish court. But it's a very, it's alluded to and it certainly doesn't appear in the records because the, the records that the Spanish kept were culled a little, quite a bit to make sure that people didn't think too badly about the spanish because of the whole situation with the pirates actually being spanish so um but what is very clear in the records is that they are actually and this is what i appreciated was they're actually very compassionate towards her and it's something that you almost don't even see a lot of the time today was this compassion that the Spanish authorities showed towards the women for the situation that they've been in. It's quite the opposite of what you'd suspect would have happened if they had been in Britain at mm-hmm. the time and that's quite a fascinating little aspect of it, I think.
0: Well, so I'd like to turn to Spain um, because at the moment we have the Morningstar Star. Getting limping its way back to London, Um, but we've kind of left the Defensor de Pedro back in the attack site, Um, so we should probably update that a little bit. And I was wondering if you could um, explain to us because I found this really interesting. You talk about kind of well, they're they're coming from um, Buenos Aires or conflict around Brazil. They a bunch of the pirates met up together in Cuba before, and that's kind of how they got started. And yet after this attack, they don't go back to any of those places they actually end up in what sounds like a pretty small fishing village, essentially, um, in Spain. So why does the Defensor de Pedro end up in Spain, of all places?
1: Well, there's a very simple and very complicated answer to that question. The simple answer is that the Defensor Pedro de Pedro goes to Pontevedra in Spain because it's Benito de Soto's hometown. After the Morningstar attack, they, they raided a few other ships and they ended up with a pretty fair haul of plunder. But the problem for all pirates across the millennia is that you can raid all the ships you want, but the time will come when you have to go to the land if you want to see the profits for what for what you've raided. And 1828 was a different time from the golden age of piracy 100 years earlier. It was no longer the case that there were dedicated pirate havens that you would have heard of like Tortuga or Port Royal, that you could just take your loot and nobody would answer, ask too many questions about it. Um, But this didn't mean you couldn't cash in. You just needed to have a personal connection or context in the place, Um, Benito de Soto, he wasn't an educated man but he wasn't stupid and he knew it would be questionable if a young Spaniard like him turned up in Havana or Baltimore as the captain of a Brazilian ship with paperwork in Portuguese that he couldn't read. So he was quite aware of the problems this represented And back in Pontevedra, his his family had a long history of fishing and smuggling. So he knew that they were able, capable of moving this kind of plunder, this kind of cargo, and so he knew that this was the best chance he had of cashing in his loot. Now, I think at. some point I mean this wasn't easy for him and I also think there was another level and but this isn't in the records but you know he's a 22 year old man he's just got all this cash up and all this sort of stuff he probably also wanted to go back there to show off a bit to his mother and his family as well so I sort of suspect that might be I didn't write that in the book but but I can kind of think that's probably what had something to do with it too so his uncle helped him out. not very happily is pretty reluctant to but he does because his family is his sister's kid so you know he's he's going to help out and he was very careful not to ask too many questions about where this stuff was coming from pretty sure he knew what had happened but he doesn't want to know too much about it mm. uh, and then he sent Spudnito off to Coruna, which is in the north of Spain um, to get rid of some of the items too that he can't actually move but um, Benito de Soto's real problem was that he had bills of exchange that he wanted to cash in, and bills of exchange are essentially like a blank cheque would be now. And to cash those, he needs to be on British soil. Um, and so that's how he ends up going to Gibraltar and get, comes into the territory of the British.
0: So how then does he get caught? Well, the regular standard story is
1: that he was in Gibraltar throwing his money around and behaving like a cliched pirate and that's how he was brought to the attention of the authorities. That's the sort of general line. Um, But the truth of it is that no one in Gibraltar suspected him at all for months. So... um, that didn't really reflect all that well on them. Um, He also didn't actually have much money at all to throw around um, because he was all tied up in his loot, which was still in Pontevedra and Coruna. so he's still waiting for all the proceeds to come through. Um, And not only that, but the one time he did go out and party, he ended up with gonorrhea. So he was actually sick in bed a lot of his time, and so he was actually, you know, hiding out because he was sick. Um, But he was actually caught because the other pirates were captured in Cadiz by Spanish authorities and they confessed and they told the Spanish that the pirate captain was in Gibraltar. and Well, one of them did. Um, and when news of this broke in Cadiz, there was a British merchant who heard this and he quickly sent off a letter to the British authorities in Gibraltar and he said there's a pirate there, there's a pirate who have been caught in Cadiz that was telling us the captain's there, you need to try and track him down and find him. And that's how he actually got caught so
0: um and that then makes sense of why the pirate there's some spanish records but there's also british records yes so that's why
1: the records are split so
0: yes um but you've tracked them down which is very helpful to us yes yes (laughs) so now that we have kind of an idea of the i guess the story at the center of the book right The, the attack on the morning star how the two ships got there what actually happened kind of what some of the Um, outcomes were for the people involved Um, obviously I don't think it's very much of a spoiler to say that the pirates um, it didn't it didn't end particularly well for them um, from the point of ending up in Spanish and British courts Um, so I'd love to kind of zoom out a little bit um, as we come towards sort of the end of this to think about the place of this attack within the broader context sort of back where we started almost Um, And to talk about what you just said about that this was no longer the golden age of piracy. There weren't these big safe havens that you could just go hang out in. And a lot of that is down to the fact that a whole bunch of countries were starting to be like, "Mm, actually, this is not super helpful. Let's crack down on it. Um, And you describe in the book that there were a number of different ways that this crackdown was done and that. In the Caribbean, we can see a lot of them kind of side by side because so many islands were owned by um, different countries. So I'm wondering if you can um, help us understand a bit kind of what the broad contours of these different crackdown policies looked like, which ones worked, why, um, and sort of help us understand how this golden age of piracy was brought to an end.
1: Um, Okay, so... There's probably three main piracy suppressors in the Caribbean in the early 19th century, and they're the British, the Americans, and the Spanish. Um, the British are, by this time, by far the strongest naval power uh, of the three of them men in the world, So, and they're also the most experienced. They've done this before, might have been 100 years ago, but still have the experience. They have the naval power. Um, and they're also, so they're primarily motivated by maintaining their naval supremacy because what pirates do is they, they th- not only do they threaten economic trade, but they threaten your prestige in the community or, or the international community if you don't do anything about them. Um, so the British at this time are making considerable proactive efforts to stop the slave trade. And this is active in still active in Cuba and Puerto Rico. The Spanish are still heavily involved in it. Um, and so their anti-piracy activity is sort of starting to link in with their anti-slavery activity. And so that's sort of how they're projecting their naval power in the Atlantic at the time. The Americans, uh, by in contrast, um, they didn't have much of a navy, um, but it was also they were the main victims as well. They were uh, had a lot of their ships, merchant ships were taken. They were under a lot of pre- uh, pressure from the merchant shippers, uh, and they were being affected by it, and so this motivated them also to stop because they are their economic trade is being threatened by it, and the Spanish, who are also the weakest power financially and militarily. Um, but most of the pirates were often of Spanish origin or in some way connected to Spain and being Cuba. Um, and so they had a strong desire to to do something about the pirates because they wanted to protect the reputation of the Spanish crown. And that it had been severely hammered by the independence movements, by, you know, centuries of plundering, the crowns in a big old, Spanish crowns in a big old mess at this time. And so it's about a reputational uh, repair for the Spanish, but they don't have the resources to do that. So each of these three powers, they they all have strong but different incentives to stop the pirates, the, the pirates. But the thing is with piracy suppression is that it's always really difficult. It was difficult during the Golden Age, it was difficult in the early 19th century, it was difficult off the coast of Somalia, and it remains pretty much that way today. So of the three of these powers, the British were the most successful because they recognised the need for diplomacy with the Spanish to gain intelligence on pirate movements and, and that kind of information. And they were also assisted because they had local bases in Jamaica and St Kitts and other um, British-owned islands, uh, and they could use these to resupply and as venues for prosecution. So they had a nice little tr- little trifecta of Piracy suppression uh, mechanisms already in place in the region. But the problem they had was they actually then tried to link this piracy suppression with their anti slavery foreign policy, and this they did not have much success with at all. The Americans, by contrast, they were at a real disadvantage because the closest resupply location they had was Florida and they'd only just taken possession of Florida and it was essentially a disease-infested swamp back then so they couldn't really stay there and it was they were really being hammered by disease and, and supply issues. Um, they also, you know, and no offence to my American colleagues, but they did have a bit of a tendency to shoot first and ask questions later um, and this upset the Spanish who refused to allow them to land in Cuba and Puerto Rico. So they weren't allowed to land in the Caribbean. They could only go to Florida. And so this really hampered their efforts. But that said, though, they definitely had a few very brave and resourceful commanders who took out a few of the more prominent and destructive pirates. So they weren't completely ineffective um, and all that. Um, And now meanwhile, the Spanish, who can't do much militarily, but they did work to improve the conditions on the land. And this is essentially the key to all piracy suppression, and that's just stopping people from becoming pirates in the first place. That's how you stop them. Um, and so, this the Spanish efforts were more successful in Puerto Rico than Cuba. But after the Zispartine War ended, and you could get rid of the pirate, the privateering commissions, and that element, and the newly independent former Spanish colonies all started to settle down politically. And in its own way, it sort of dissipated because of that anyway. So there's a combination of all three of them, they didn't really work together. I mean, the British worked with the Spanish, but they didn't really work in any kind of cohesive unit like they have more recently. Um, but somehow or other, they blundered it all through and somehow <laughs> managed to, to deal with it. But I think the, the changes on the land was probably a solid 75% of that effort as well. So mm-hmm. that helped too.
0: Yeah, big, big part. And, and of course, some very interesting parallels to perhaps more modern um, thinking mm. about terrorism and counterterrorism. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah probably worth just i'll just leave that there for people
1: (laughs) that's a whole other podcast yeah (laughs) um
0: so now that you have very um helpfully helped us understand kind of what this attack actually was who was on the various ships what happened to them afterwards um as well as at the beginning kind of the media context of this as and now the sort of geopolitical um aspects of it um we i think we've we've done a pretty good tour of a lot of the main points of the book which leaves me only with my final question um, which might be the hardest of them all we'll find out Um, the book is obviously out and available for listeners to go read all of the cool details do you therefore have a project that you're working on now or next you can tell us a teaser about
1: Oh well, that would be lovely.
0: Um, but at the moment,
1: I'm doing a lot of
0: local history
1: research in around Melbourne, and there's not a lot of pirates around here. Um, but you I can have other things than pirates. I know, I know. You know, we haven't we've been locked down for two years. You know, but we haven't turned to piracy just yet. So it was close, but you know, almost there. But um, so I run a few um, workshops around my local community, but not to do with piracy. I talk I talk about pirates when I can. Um, but I am trying. I'm currently trying to shape uh, my Somali piracy research into some semblance of a book. It's sort of still, you know how hard, it's just difficult. (laughs) um, It's a bit of a challenge, but I'm getting there slowly. Um, But if you're really interested, you know, I run a piracy-themed Instagram account and that's called Piracy in Pictures. So uh, a couple of times a week you get a little snippet of pirate information on there. Um, Ultimately what I'd really love to do is write, a definitive pirate who's who, based on proper historical research that you know unpacks all the myths and versus the, the realities around it, which is I find really fascinating. But that's a really big job, so we'll just. <laughs> so yeah if the book sells to Netflix for a million dollars or something then maybe we could probably pull it off but um that seems unlikely at this stage but you never know so um yeah so I would like to do that but I keep my hand in and, and all of that and I'm trying to do something with my Somali piracy stuff at the moment too it's been hanging around a bit too much so I'm gonna do something with it but well, yeah that's where I am for- at the moment
0: Yeah, thank you for giving us inklings of those projects. And it's always an interesting way to end. Um, But while you are off doing that, listeners can read the book, again titled Atlantic Piracy in the Early 19th Century The Shocking Story of the Pirates and Survivors of the Morning Star, out this year in 2022 from Boydell and Brewer. Dr. Sarah Craze, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It was lovely
1: to be here. Thank you for having me.